Restaurants Unstoppable, episode 369. And hey, the one thing that we got to do to be successful is when somebody sits down at our counter, we have to treat them as if they were in our home. And, uh, and, and we, 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 we believed in that. And so, uh, the customer was always right. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Yo, guys, what if I told you I found a menu that's made from paper that's waterproof and rip proof? This thing is basically dirty proof. Jesus, Mary and Joseph, get me some of that. Uh, I hate cleaning menus, but you can have this menu. It's called Terra Slate Menus, guys. You'll get 15% off if you use promotional code unstoppable at checkout. So what are you waiting for? Head over to TerraSlatePaper.com. One question for you. Does your social media game have room for improvement? The answer is yes for everyone across the board. We all need to continuously be improving to be unstoppable. But if you don't necessarily know exactly what you're doing, social media can be super intimidating. You need a strategy. You need a plan. Where does it come from? I'll tell you where it comes from. The number one marketing and promotion book, Bar and Restaurant Success. Head over to freebrsbook.com. One more time, freebrsbook.com to get your free copy of this book. I can't make it any easier. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Alan Silverman. Alan, are you feeling unstoppable today, my man? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. All right. And a special shout out, a thank you to Erica who called out Alan, her stepfather, who, uh, according to Erica, just has had an incredible career. Guys, I'm listening to you. If you want me to get somebody on the show, if you want somebody to share their story, make a recommendation. I'll get them on the show. At least I'll try to do everything I can to get them on the show. And uh, I can't wait to get your story, Alan. So Alan has hailed from Brooklyn and has experienced a lifetime of loving and making a living from food. Alan, it comes from old school fine dining and has worked in some of the greatest restaurants in New York, Chicago, and LA. And today, Alan has settled in Seattle where he serves as the founder and CFO of Festivals Inc. Obviously, we're just scraping the surface, Alan. I can't wait to dive in deeper to your story to find out how you got to where you are today and what you've learned along the way. But before we do dive in, let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you have for us? The one thing I found in the restaurant business in order to be successful is you have to fear, absolutely fear, mediocrity. And it is so easy in the restaurant trade to have a successful restaurant and just let things slide instead of continuing to achieve the highest quality of both service and food that you can. 
Mm-hmm. So my always my fear has always been, don't let yourself get into mediocrity. I love it, man. I love it. And I feel like people get sucked into mediocrity. They've achieved what they wanted to achieve. They got to a certain point. They said to themselves, I'm here now. I've got it. Uh, and then when that happens, they stop trying. Everybody then starts to surpass what they've done. And I think that's why the best person to compete against is yourself. If you show up every day being a better version of yourself today than you were yesterday, then you'll never slack. You'll never slow down. What do you think about that statement? That's, uh, that's very true. Very true. Awesome. Very true. Great, man. So, and, uh, that, keep going. And Sorry. That, okay. So now, um, starting out, um, I didn't know anything about the restaurant business. I moved to California with my wife and was looking for a job. Couldn't find one. Um, there was a fountain police in a drugstore. In, uh, in, in Brentwood, uh, LA. And, uh, I talked the landlord into giving me a chance. And the only background I had was I had worked in a luncheonette or soda fountain over the summer while I was going to school one year. And, uh, that was when you were still in New York you know, when you were in school. No, that was 19. 19- well, yeah, I was uh, in New York at the time, okay. uh, going to school, and then uh, so then uh, we took over this fountain, and uh, uh, you know put put out what at the time was way ahead of myself was because people said, well, you got to have a menu, and I said. Yeah, how much does the menu cost? And they told me, I said, God, I don't want to spend that money because I don't have a whole lot of money. Yeah. Uh, I was a young kid. I was 23 years old. Wow. Um, and so, um, we got a blackboard and my wife had great handwriting and we would put on there a half a dozen things that we served that day. Interesting. And, uh, uh, of course, in 1955, I mean, that was not done in a luncheonette counter type of environment. Yeah. But, uh, it, uh, we zeroed in on those five or six items. I, uh, did as much research as I can, as I could at the time. Um, and, uh, I also, took a job in a coffee shop because the fountain was only open till six o'clock at night. And so we closed down and I got a job working in an all night coffee shop from eight at night till four in the morning. Oh my gosh. When did you sleep? And, uh, <laughs> not much, uh, an hour oh, or two uh, before but I, I went home, home and rested the and my wife closed up the fountain, or I, uh, and then I uh, was uh, seven o'clock in the morning. We were open for the fountain. Um, so anyway, it's uh, the cooks there were very good to me. They showed me things that uh, uh, that they did and how they did it, and and, and I learned from them. And are these um, the, the coffee I shop took, cooks? 
These were the coffee shop cooks. Okay. It was Norm Norm's Coffee Shop on Wilshire Boulevard. Okay. In uh, in uh, uh, Fletchwood Village, actually. And so um, I did that for uh, uh, five months and uh, learned a lot. Uh, got enough money to uh, to publish a menu <laughs> finally, oh. and and uh, and we started serving uh, some what I thought were a little upgrade from normal fountain stuff like. And I did, uh, you know, roast brisket and um, uh, uh, beef goulash and uh, um, all kinds of uh, salads and things as, as much as we can because our seating capacity was uh, 21, uh, 21 and uh, it was no table, just, just a counter. My wife was a waitress and I was a cook. And uh, I covered the last three stools on the end of the counter, and she did all the rest. We had no dishwasher. We had to wash everything by hand in the sink in front. My wife had to do that while she was serving customers. And so a funny story out of that is that as um, we started putting out pretty good quality food, I thought, and... I found I had a little knack for it and improvised on some things. And so things were working out and we started getting a trade uh, that was, uh, that followed us uh, every day because we catered, we were the only place in the neighborhood that catered to the UPS driver, the mailman, the pool cleaner, et cetera, all the blue collar guys. And so they would come in and, and uh, eat at our place. And we served a very, very good hamburger because I knew that was essential, uh, especially for this trade. And so after a while, we were doing so well that we had people waiting for a seat at the counter because uh, the counter was full. And uh, uh, we started getting a few celebrities uh, from the Hollywood set that would, you know, just all of a sudden stop in uh, and names that uh, you probably may not remember. Gene Kelly, uh, Ronald Coleman, uh, Esther Williams, uh, Xavier Cougar. Um, <laughs> it's a little before my time, uh, I have to be honest, Alan. But it sounds like you okay. had something truly amazing going on. And I'm curious um, – Something I ask all my guests that I didn't get a chance to ask you yet. What was it about this industry that interests you? Why did you choose to get out of the military and start working in hospitality? Why did you want to own a restaurant? Well, I I, I think I was I always had the entrepreneur spirit. I think that was always in the back of my mind. Is that I was. Uh, probably more comfortable doing something on my own rather than working for somebody else. And I think that was the motivating factor at that time. And so I'm, also, I'm also curious. You said that this gentleman that you were leasing the space from, you're 23 years old. And he said he took a chance on you. Uh, 
take us a little bit deeper into that experience. What what was it about you in this experience of trying to convince this landlord to uh, lease you this property? What what was it about you that you think he liked that he was willing to take a chance on you? Well, uh, uh, I, I think the fact the, the factor that and it was a she, not a he. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, and, and I think the factor that uh, uh, was in my favor was the fact that I I told her that um, unequivocally I will not fail. And she was concerned for the factor that the counter was in a drugstore and her druggist was a was a, a big uh, uh, tenant of hers, of course. And it was a private drugstore, of course, no Walgreens. But uh, she wanted to make sure that the druggist was going to be happy. And so I had a great conversation with the owner of that. And I told him, I said, hey, I'm going to make, I'm going to make you famous, I told him. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So you were taking anyway. interest. And it wasn't just about you. You were looking out for that the other people. That I think maybe that, do you think that might have contributed to you being able to get this opportunity yes. is not making it all about you, but making it about us, the team, and how we can do better. Yes, awesome. yes, and and the fact and the factor is the druggist wanted people coming in uh, to sit at our counter because a lot of them would then end up buying something in his drugstore. So you so, had a very uh, little overhead or very little starting capital you didn't need much starting capital really because you were going into a space that already existed it was already a business you kind of just took over the counter that's correct that's uh, they smart. had all the equipment there i just had to buy the food etc yes smart yes. that's real smart partnerships can be yeah. very powerful also uh, what was it i mean you said that you had a knack for the cooking um but there to me there's always something else than just the food what do you think that you were doing aside from you know paying attention to the blue collar uh, people and really catering to everybody? What was it about you? And what what did you do that was special that made people love to come and sit at your counter? Well, you know, I I hate to say say this, but I think part of the reason they came was because of my wife, not because of me. <laughs> <laughs> so, what was your what did your wife? My do? wife. What was special about your my, wife? My wife was a uh, former model in New York. Okay. Um, she she took quite a step down well to be done, a waitress. <laughs> uh, but uh, she was a very good looking woman. There you go. And the other the other factor, we were a little deceitful because until um, well, almost uh, a year over a year went by. We never let our customers know that we were married. Uh, they thought that she was single oh. and I was single <laughs> and that we were. And so they would leave her big tips. <laughs> and I have to admit that there were months when her tips uh, uh, pulled us through. So, um, yeah, it was uh, it was the quite funny I mean, at the time. It's definitely a benefit to have uh, or to be attractive. I mean, it's especially when you're serving people. We like to be around attractive people, obviously. But there's got to be something more going on there with your wife. How did she treat people? How how was she emotionally? Was she a, an emotionally intelligent person? Like, did she really 
take into consideration these other people and like what they wanted and how they felt? Like, how was she as a person? Well, uh, both of us um, had that inter inter, uh, inter, uh, inter interpersonal. Um, yeah, uh, way of dealing with people. Okay, uh, we thought uh, we started out, and her and I, without knowing anything, said, "Hey, the one thing that we got to do." to be successful is when somebody sits down at our counter, we have to treat them as if they were in our home. Mm. And, uh, and, and we, 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 we believed in that. And so, uh, the customer was always right. Anything that we could do to help the customer. And the other thing we did is when customers would come in and say, well, you know, I've had this, um, I've had this dish before, uh, for instance, uh, beef goulash or something, and they would say, you know, um, I, uh, my wife makes it a different way. So I would say, well, why don't you bring in your wife's recipe and we'll try it? So, I mean, in other words, we had that kind of connection with the, with the clientele. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so it, it just uh, grew like that. And we were like, uh, and we were young kids, you know. Uh, uh, my wife was 22, I was 23. And so um, it it just worked for us, you know. It just worked for us. It sounds like you cared, Alan, and that's what I'm hearing. And, uh, I mean, you, I mean, we're going all the way back to 1955 right now. we got a lot of time to cover. So uh, why don't you do me a favor and just kind of just quickly just, like, mention the different – stops you took along the way to get to where you are now and uh once you've gotten to like more present time i'll start pulling back some layers but i want to make sure we kind of follow your journey uh just real quickly like two sentences for each i guess stop along your way to where we are now can you do that for us sure sure um so after uh, two years uh running the fountain a store uh vacated next door and um and I opened up a deli, um, and that had uh, uh, a seating of uh, 45 um, with, uh, with some counter and some uh, tables. And uh, it was called the Notch Box, and uh, it, was, it became uh, very successful. Um, I ran that for six years and then um, sold it and went into partnership with uh, a, a guy I met uh, from from the business who was working in another deli. And we opened up one in, um, in El Segundo, uh, California, and uh, called King Saul. And that was a 24-hour um, uh, deli. Uh, after a year, we opened up another one called King Solomon in Encino. So we were operating both of them at the same time. And then, for those in the restaurant business who have never uh, faced adversity, um, 
I had more than my share. Um, our restaurant in, in El Segunda was not far from the 1965 Watch Riot. And uh, our 24-hour business uh, dwindled fast after that, even though we were three miles away, uh, the effect of it covered a wide area of uh, LA. Mm -hmm. And so I sold out to my partner and went to work for uh, res uh, a restaurant company uh, in Beverly Hills that uh, had several restaurants. Um, became a uh, started out as an assistant manager and moved my way up to um, a general manager of their top uh, restaurant and of course all this time I'm learning uh, from those uh, I'm associated with as well as the people working for me um, the, the chefs and and uh, the uh, managers and so forth, and so uh, I was broadening my knowledge at the same time. Mm. And so after that stint with them, I was offered <laughs> an opportunity to start a chain of steakhouses uh, with Priceco, which was then Fedbar in San Diego. Um, they wanted to build steakhouses on all their uh, properties throughout the Southwest, Texas, Arizona, and Southern California. And uh, I uh, tried that for a while, and when when I developed the pilot program for them, and uh, Saul Price was the owner, and he wanted to break even. He didn't want to make money at it. He wanted it as a come on for uh, his customers to shop in his store. And so the steakhouse that I set up for them uh, broke even um, after the first uh, nine months, actually. Uh, and that wasn't hard to do, giving the stuff away at the price that he was. Um, and so when I went to him and said, uh, okay, we got the pilot set up, um, and uh, it's working. He says, fine. He says, now design the restaurants to go on the rest of the property. So I hired a designer, uh, came back to him with a cost and, uh, and excluding the, uh, the building, uh, just the restaurant itself. Uh, he found that was going to cost them about $350,000. So and this is said, what you year know are we what? now? Is this the sixties still or seventies? Yeah, now we're in sixty six, sixty seven. Okay. Uh about there. Okay. And so um I uh I came to him with the uh, with the bid and he says, you know, he says, Alan, he says, you know how much it costs me to operate a uh, warehouse store for uh Fedmark? Or, or build one, I should say. And I said, no. He says, well, it's less than 350000 So Man. I said, well, that's the restaurant business. I mean, you know, what can I say? <laughs> but uh, so that was the end of that. He says, you know, thanks 
but no thanks, I'm not going to do that. Okay. <laughs> and so, and actually that was the best thing that happened to me because uh, I went back uh, to L.A. and um, uh, I was uh, called up by uh, the uh, general manager of Lowry's Restaurant for an interview. And um, his name was Hans Prager, a uh, very renowned chef and the general manager for Lowry's. And so after a meeting with him, he hired me to uh, take over a restaurant in which they had just changed the operation from what it has been since 1939 uh, till uh, these were in the 60s. And they were having problems because all the old timers came in and said, what did you do with the regular menu? This isn't what we were used to. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were having problems. And so he says, if you can solve this, he says, uh, you'll do well in this company. And I did solve it. it said, uh, and I did, uh, uh, I did change some of the things they had, they were doing on the menu. And we were m making sure that our service was beyond reproach. And as a result, uh, it became uh, very successful. And uh, I then got promoted to be the, uh, to take over his job when he left to start his own uh, business. And so um, I was then the general manager of, uh, of all of Lowry's uh, restaurants, which was a fantastic opportunity working with uh, a group of people that uh, love food and uh, and only uh, would uh, would want the, the best quality possible uh, in their restaurants, and it was the most prestigious uh, job I think a guy could have uh, with with a company like that. Of course, the prime rib was known, you know, worldwide, for, uh, you know, on La Cienica for what uh, it implied. But all their other restaurants, and there were quite a few, I opened one in San Francisco called the Ben Johnson, uh, which was quite an experience that uh, uh, if, if, if I were to look back on, on my whole life in the restaurant business, Probably opening up the Ben Johnson was probably the highlight. Uh, it, it was a restaurant, uh, Eric, that um, uh, we put into the cannery in San Francisco uh, in 1968. Um, uh, uh, we bought the the interior from the Randolph Hearst estate that had been in a warehouse in New York from the 30s. He was going to put it into San Simeon and never got around to it. And we bought several rooms from what was a castle called, um, well, I'll think of it in a minute. <laughs> anyway, uh, it was an English castle and uh, Albans Hall. Albans Hall was okay. the name of it. And we put this together. He brought over um, 
six English carpenters that he put up for a year putting this thing together with peg and dowel. Oh no gosh. screws. Uh, just unbelievable. And uh, so when we opened it up in uh, 69, it, it took us two years. Um, it was uh, it was just, just just tremendous. I mean, everything we did in that place. I mean, the the uh, the costumes. Uh, this was you know 18th century England, and the costumes were uh, designed by uh, uh, Hollywood uh, costume designers. They could, imagine this in 1969. We paid four hundred dollars a piece for each costume, and each girl had to have three. Oh, man. So uh, that's just the costume. I mean, uh, he bought the original bid th that we made on the uh, on the uh, room that we bought from this for the Sullivan Hall was eight thousand dollars. That was the winning bid in New York. Wow! It cost us eight thousand dollars to move those rooms out to San Francisco. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Man. So and 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 we spent a million dollars just putting it together. Wow. Man. Yeah. That's intense. So this was 6869. Uh I feel like we're almost right. halfway there. <laughs> so uh yeah. we're 28 minutes into this interview. I want to make sure I'm getting all the little stops along the way and then I'll reflect after I get it all. So what happened next? How long you know, you said you said it was two years in '69. You finally opened. How long were you were you working at this location? What was it called again? I'm sorry. The the Ben John. Well, I was I was still, I was still general manager of their restaurant. Okay. And and uh, running all the the rest of them. Um. And uh, and then in uh, in 1971. Um. Richard Frank, who was the owner, sold the food company. And Lowry's, of course, had those package things, the salt and, um, and all the packaged spaghetti sauces and all the other items that they sold under the Lowry name, spices. And um, he sold the company to Lipton. And... Uh, and then his son, who was just graduating Stanford, uh, he told me, uh, was going to take over uh, as general manager. And so basically I was out of a job. Oh, man. And, um, and so I uh, moved up here to Seattle um, and uh, went to work for a department store chain, uh, the Bon Marché. Um, and the only reason I came up here was because in doing my due diligence as to the area, uh, Seattle at the time in 1971-72, I thought was a desert of restaurants that the restaurants were not only mediocre, most of them were pretty bad. Okay. And so I felt, hey, if I could come up here and lay the groundwork and, you know, find a place to open up, uh, that I could be very successful. 
Okay. And that's exactly what I did. I worked for the department store for three years. Uh, I did a good job for them. I, uh, I was able to, uh, uh, make them a profit that they hadn't seen for 30 years in the, in the food, uh, industry, a food business. Uh, you know, of course, department stores looked upon food service as a convenience for their customers more than a profit center. But, uh, I showed them it could be a profit center. And the most fun I had was I also uh, ran their bakery. And that to me was the, the, the funnest part of the whole job in that I was able to uh, take this bakery, which was a loser. Uh, and, and after uh, 18 months, um, made a $100,000 profit. Oh, wow. uh, and my bosses were absolutely ecstatic. Uh, and they wanted me to go around to all the other department stores that Allied owned at the time and show them how to make a profit in their bakeries. <laughs> so oh, yeah. let's dive into uh, that. We'll, we'll for, actually, uh, I'm going to pull, I'm, I'm going to actually retract my last statement because I want you to get through until 1982, which is when you opened uh, what you have going on now, which is uh, the Festivals, Inc. So what happened between 74 when you started to open your own restaurants in Seattle to 1982? What what series of events happened in that time? Um, I opened up a restaurant called Barnaby's and, um, you know, took a lot of stuff that I had created for Lowry's years before and, um, and, uh, ran that for, um, um, a couple of years and we were going through, um, well, more than that. I opened up in, uh, let's see. I opened up in 74, uh, 74. Right. Right. And, um, and then, um, in 1982, we were going through a recession, and we ha- I had formed, not I, but uh, me, myself and some other restaurateurs had formed a roundtable of restaurant operators Oh man! Um, uh, that met every other month. This was an 82. Talk about. In 82, you formed the roundtable? Right. Table? Okay. Yes. To talk about the cost of laundry, the cost of insurance, you know, uh, the cost of garbage. I mean, you name it. We covered all the bases. And it was just, you know, nice guys. We were all competitors, but we're not, you know, uh, we understood the business. And so it was very uh, educational. And, uh, and people uh, and the guys that came uh, really enjoyed it. And so in 82, everybody was complaining about dropping customer counts because of the recession. So I said, well, let's stir things up and see if we could get people thinking about dining out. And so I created this Bite of Seattle, which would basically take a bunch of restaurants, put them on the grass in the park, and... and Invite people to come down and uh, and uh, and have, you know try something different. 
and we limited the uh, the uh, price of the entrees to. We started out with I think it was three fifty or two fifty. I can't remember. I think it's three fifty, and you couldn't charge more than that. Anyway, we thought maybe twenty five thousand people show up, and said there was about seventy five thousand people over a two day event, Saturday and Sunday. And uh, <laughs> the restaurant operators were kept having to run back to their restaurants to get more food because they were running out. And anyway, it became very successful. And then uh, the next year, we expanded it, uh, took on more um, space, and had more restaurants. And now, and added a stage with entertainment. And uh, and so we ran that from 1982 to 1986. And then the city says, you know what? You're too successful. We don't want you where you are. You've got to move to Seattle Center where we have more room. And, um, and besides, we want the income that you're generating at Seattle Center, of course, which is a Seattle landmark and, uh, and their sort of, uh, uh, entertainment capital, so okay. to speak, uh, of what goes on there with the Space Needle and all that stuff. Okay. So we so we moved to Seattle Center in 1986, and then Tacoma asked us to do a similar event uh, in uh, Tacoma at Point Defiance, and so we started that and uh, tasted Tacoma. And by the time we got through with that, uh, I said, you know what, this is a, a full time job now, and so I sold my restaurant. Uh, bought a uh, open bought a bought a uh, steakhouse, basically th- that I thought would be easier to run than than Barnaby's uh, because of the menu and so forth. Wait, what what year? And, I'm sorry. What what year did you buy the steakhouse? Uh, 1987. Okay, thank you. 87, 88, something like that, and so. Uh, uh, so I ran that, and I had the two shows, the bite and the taste, and uh, and then eventually got out of uh, the steakhouse, sold that, and uh, we started doing uh, other events other than the bite and the taste because we found out we had an expertise there you go. for doing outdoor events that were successful, and so. Um, and it just kept growing from there, and uh, and uh, yeah, we did we did an event called Sea Fair, which is their hydroplane racing up here. But we did all the landside activities for that, and you know, just like everything I've done up till now, Eric, the reason that we were successful with all of our events is that when we took over an event, we took we brought with us a quality of service and food that the people weren't used to. In other words, it was no longer just a hot dog uh, and a hamburger, but uh, we had, we brought in the ethnic food. Uh, we brought in uh, 
all kinds of different uh, uh, restaurants uh, to set up shop and offer their wares. And this is what made us successful in all these events. And as a result, um, uh, you know, the places we took over were successful and everything, uh, you know, grew from there. Which goes back to your original statement, your success quote, your mantra of fearing mediocrity, absolutely fearing mediocrity and, and standing out and being excellent and doing things that are out of the, the ordinary. And Alan, my, my page is filled with notes up to this point because I, I just want to make sure we got everything out before I started chiming in. Yeah. Uh, and the first thing I have highlighted on my, my notes uh, was this idea in – the 67 when you were in Beverly Hills, uh, even back then when you were the assistant GM going to the GM, you knew at this time of your life that it was your time to learn not. And you knew not to just learn from your superiors, but you could learn from everybody. I mean, were you in that moment in time, were you subconsciously like on a mission to learn or was that just what was happening? No, I was on a, on a mission to learn because um, it was exciting. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, it, it, it really excited me to go to work every day. Mm. And, uh, and I guess, you know, uh, I could even say, uh, for a period there when I was with Lowry's, uh, which of course emphasized, emphasized quality, um, uh, I was probably a workaholic, uh, and, uh, I had complaints from my family, you know, the time that, uh, I was, uh, spending away from them. And so, uh, but it, it was so exciting that it just, uh, kept me, kept me going every day. Mm. And you said that you, um, you learned from the best at your time at Lowry's. What would you say were the biggest lessons you learned at Lowry's? Um, well, you know, in the same light as, as, as you would say, you know, avoiding mediocrity, um, the one thing Lowry showed me is, um, um, that even though it may cost a little bit more, that, uh, it's better to, uh, have the best, um, whether it's, uh, the equipment you use, uh, for the cook or whether it's, um, uh, it's the food that you buy. Um, when I was working for Lowry's, um, uh, I found out that uh, uh, our fish supplier um, was uh, was not, you know, sending us the best stuff. I felt, and so I uh, I researched and found uh, somebody who was buying all or was selling all um, uh, uh, fresh fish out of Alaska, a troll caught uh, salmon and stuff like that. And so uh, I changed suppliers. And my boss says, well, hey, you just increased our food costs by 6 7%. I said, yeah, but the customer's going to know the difference. And I said, if necessary, we'll raise our prices. Yeah. And that's what we did. Oh man, there's a huge so lesson there. Yeah. We paid, yeah, we paid more for the product, but you know, 
the customer was willing to pay it because they knew what they were getting. So, man, that's such a huge lesson. And people get in a lot of trouble uh, looking at the bottom line constantly and trying to pinch pennies and never sacrifice quality, uh, in my opinion. And I think the other big lesson there is the power of being number one. If you're going to do something, be the best at it because the difference between being number one and being number two is like times like like I don't know. I can't remember the number, but it's. I heard somewhere along the lines of like vanilla, for example, is the number one ice cream in the world, and chocolate is number two. And vanilla sells wow. something ridiculous, like seventy, like seventy percent more uh, in sales. The difference between number one and number two is seventy percent. Uh, just to kind of goes to show, like, don't sacrifice the quality. Be number one when you're the best at something. When you're number one, like it always pays off, and you can charge the best. Um, and the margins are always better at number one. So. Absolutely. Um, very to true. That? Very true. Excuse me. Do you want to add anything to that? Uh, no, I think that I think that's very true. And um, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, a friend of mine. I, I always tell the story. A friend of mine uh, who was uh, in a partnership in a restaurant and. Um, uh, he was he was very successful, and uh, he and I both had the same outlook as far as quality and, and, and delivering service and all that. But he had a partner who was a penny pincher. Mm. And one day his partner came in and told him that uh, 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 he was looking at the supply costs, and he says, we're spending too much money on paper towels and uh, and uh, toilet paper in the bathroom. And at that point, my partner says, we're through. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. When, when, we, when I got to worry about the cost of paper towels and toilet paper, then I, I don't belong in this business. Oh, man. Uh, the other huge thing that I wanted to take away from this story, which I thought was awesome, was the... Uh, the round table that you joined was that were you behind that was that your idea was that somebody else's idea no it wasn't my idea it was uh it was the idea of uh actually two other restaurateurs and uh and when i built my restaurant they called me up and asked me if i would join them and uh, uh they were a great bunch of guys and uh and you know they uh they were from, uh, you know, very successful restaurants. And so, hey, I, I felt, hey, I could do nothing but learn here, <laughs> exactly. you know. Exactly. And there's a theme going on today of just always be learning, always be surrounding yourself with people who know what they're doing and learn. Like, and that, it seems like that's what you've done along your career. I mean, first, uh, you got your foot in the door at this restaurant or at this this countertop. Uh, you couldn't afford ah. your, your own uh counter like you couldn't afford your own brick and mortar location your own restaurant so you just got in someplace and started small and you scaled up from there and then you went on just to surround yourself with people who knew what they were doing to learn more to learn more and then you continue to do that with the mastermind or the round table which is another another word for that is mastermind the power of a mastermind yeah. to, to get together to to brainstorm to share problems to share solutions it's so powerful and are you familiar with um with uh, the the term mastermind is, is that something that you're aware of no no 
Yeah, uh, Napoleon Hill wrote this great book, Think and Grow Rich, and he kind of coined the idea of a mastermind, of getting together with other like-minded people with similar goals, and even through your competitors, but get together, work together, mastermind, and help each other out, and everybody wins. It becomes a win-win situation. Um, Absolutely, absolutely. uh, I don't know what to ask, where to start, because you've just done so much. I'd rather just bounce it back to you and ask, you know, what are three things that you know to be true to success or to become successful? Uh, if you could just think of three things, what's the first thing that you know to be true on, in order to become successful? Um, huh. Well, let's see. Um, the first thing is, uh, you've got to have, you've got to physically be involved in your food service. And I think it's very, very important that a lot of operators who have become successful turn over things to, um, to their managers and so forth and, and no longer visit the restaurants as you know, as they used to. Do you go down the line before dinner and taste the sauces and taste the dressings that, and, or, and, you know, and just over, uh, overlook, uh, what's going on so that you have a good idea? It's, it's very important to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I always felt that, uh, uh, you've got to spend time, uh, in the kitchen to know what you're serving, not just what goes out on the plate because you're having dinner with your family and you're the, and you're the boss and you're the owner. Mm -hmm. What's the second thing you know to be true from your time in this industry? Um, Suppliers. um, I had an axiom that I used with all of my vendors. And I told all of them after, you know, I would maybe have uh, two or three suppliers supplying me uh, different things. And I would tell them that, you know, I'm going to test you all to see how well you do and and what you send me. And and then uh, if, if I feel it's warranted, I may... You know, give all of you my business. I mean, one of you my business. And so what I would do is I would tell the vendors, always treat me like a new customer. Mm. Don't treat me like an old customer. Um, if the price drops on romaine, then I want you to drop the price of my romaine. <laughs> um, I, you know what I mean? I don't want you to think that uh, that I'm not paying attention. Mm-hmm. Got you. And the third thing, uh, if there's just one last thing that you know to be true uh, that has contributed to your success, what would it be? You have to be astute to what is going on in the world of food. Um, Reading different uh, magazine articles, even the daily paper, um, uh, visiting, uh, restaurants that, 
have become acclaimed by the public find out why they are acclaimed, why they are successful. Uh, in other words, do your window shopping. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very important to get out there and see what's going on outside your your business. Mm -hmm. I love it. And uh, that's one thing I've noticed about you is you're always curious. You're always learning. And it's one of those seven habits of highly effective people from Stephen R. Covey. The last habit is sharpen the, the, shaw, the saw. Always sharpen the saw, which is his way of always you know, right. keep, keep that blade sharp. Keep on learning and never stop learning because once you stop learning, that's when you'll get past. And it's a never-ending game of just learning and, and just self-improvement, finding out what's going on out there and just being at the forefront of it all. I love it. Um, we're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors, and then we'll be right back for a speed round. We've all been there. I'm sure you have been uh, just going through that stack of menus every night, pulling out the nasty, soiled, expensive pieces of paper, putting them aside, throwing them away. God, it's so frustrating. This is a line item that just gets the best of us. It destroys our budget and people are so freaking dirty. It's like, ah, Anyway, what if I told you that I discovered a piece of paper that's rip-proof and waterproof, 100% rip-proof and waterproof. This stuff is so durable, it's what the military uses to print their navigational maps and charts on. Like They trust this stuff, and now they're printing menus on it. Head over to TerraSlate.com paper.com to learn more guys i'm telling you this stuff is durable i've seen the owner kyle ewing throw this menu through a dishwasher to prove its durability again terra slate paper.com that's t-e-r-r-a-s-l-a-t-e paper.com and if you use promotional code unstoppable you will save 15 percent on your first order get after it I will not sit here and tell you that I have the secret sauce to marketing. The truth is the best way to market your restaurant is to do an incredible job for walls marketing, busting your ass, providing incredible experiences and just being the best at what you do. That's how you market your restaurant. The second best way to market your restaurant is direct marketing. This is any way you connect directly with your guest, and it goes beyond phone calls and in snail mail today. Social media, Facebook ads, emails, text messaging, Wi-Fi, mobile phones, apps. There's so many ways to connect directly with our guests, but you would need a degree or countless hours of research and planning and strategizing to pull all these things together on your own. There is another option. You can adopt a proven, successful, completely customizable, done-for-you strategy and plan created by an expert and past guest mentor on Restaurant Unstoppable, Nick Fosberg. Nick shares everything he knows in his book, Bar and Restaurant Success. It's the number one marketing and promotion book out there right now. Get this book for free. Go to freebrsbook.com and implement these strategies and plans today. Freebrsbook.com. We're back. And the first question I have for you, Alan, is what is your it? factor, a habit, a trait, or a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Keep your eyes open in, in, in your establishment for everything. Um, I have trained myself 
to make sure that if there's a light bulb out, I'm going to find it. Um, if there is a bar stool that is torn and ripped that should be reupholstered, I'm going to find it. Um, in other words, don't let anything get by what you see in your own business. I love it. Don't let anything get by what you see in your own business. And what is your biggest weakness? My biggest weakness is being a terrible taster. Being a terrible my chef, taster. Uh, my chef would come to me with a new dish that we're working on, a special or something. And they say, hey, I'd like you to try this. So normally, I guess, other people would say, fine. And they take one little bite of it or something, and they make a comment. Well, I would sit down, and I'd eat the whole damn plate. <laughs> and the chef says, well, wait a minute. I, I just wanted you to taste it. Oh, I said, funny. well, it's good. It's good. I like it. You know? oh, so that man. was my big problem. You know, my, my wife used to complain because, you know, we, we did a, a lot of times the, the chefs and I did our experimentation in the middle of the day in between lunch and dinner. And so I'd come home at night and I'd go to my wife. I said, you know, I'm not very hungry. Well, why? Well, then of course I explained to her why. I just ate a plate of whatever, you know, at the restaurant. And so, uh, you know, that would upset her. But uh, <laughs> anyway, but that that was that was a problem of mine. Uh, I can see that being a problem. I, I think that I might have that same problem. But uh, <laughs> the next question I have for you is, what is one piece of advice you have on being a leader? Um, or how to become a better leader? Well, uh, it's happened several times in my uh, working history. Um, uh, When I went to work for Lowry's, for instance, uh, I had this one restaurant at, you know, I was just a manager of that restaurant when they hired me, and the great Scott, and uh, we had a uh, ale and sandwich bar in which uh, we served uh, uh, sandwiches in the bar only. And it was very popular. And we cut them by hand. And about the fourth day that I was there, the cook who would normally have occupied that position and made the sandwiches, um, decided to quit. And so uh, we didn't have anybody extra at the time, so I just took off my jacket and went in, and uh, I'm pretty good at the knife, uh, and and ran the sandwich bar. And, of course, the, the other employees noticed that right away, and they say, well, he's not afraid to get his hands dirty. And... Uh, uh, the cook quit uh, just before lunch, and so I took off my jacket and went in there and um, and cut the brisket sandwiches uh, all through lunch. And of course, 
you know, the the crew notices that, and uh, they say, well, hey, this guy's not afraid to get his hands dirty, and I wasn't. And I've done the same thing with dishwashers, where I've gone into the dishwashing uh, uh, department to show them that uh, uh, what I'm asking them is not uh, out of uh, the norm. And yeah. so, uh, because, you know, that would happen from time to time. So making those type of things, and I've done that on the line. I mean, I jumped in as a line cook. Uh, when I had my own delis uh, on Sunday, uh, actually, I ran the line on Sunday because our business was so uh, terrific uh, on Sunday that uh, uh, I felt I had to be in there. And so I ran the line. Uh, um, and, you know, the, the crews recognize that and they say, well, hey, you know, this guy knows his business and he's, uh, and if he asks me to do something, I know that he's not asking me because he can't do it. He's asking me because he wants me to do it. I love it. So, I love it. Uh, Don't uh, ask anybody yeah. to do anything that you wouldn't do yourself is what I have exactly. heard. Exactly. Exactly. Hearing you say now, I love it. Yeah. Uh, what is one question yeah. you ask or used to ask during the interview process when you were trying to develop and grow your team? Um, what is the first one question uh, I would ask? Uh, well, I, I mean, as, as, as simple as it is, I would always ask the question, why do you want to be in this business? Um, and, uh, a, a lot of times I got the wrong answer. I mean, uh, if they told me, well, it's the money, I'd say, well, that's great. I hope you wish you the best of luck and find another job. Um, so it, it, that question, you know, why are you in this business? Do you enjoy it? Do you like it? Uh, do you love people? Uh, you know, it answers a lot of questions. Beautiful. Uh, what is a current challenge if you are dealing with any challenges right now, and how are you dealing with it? Well, I'm retired, Eric. <laughs> yeah, I thought uh, so. I saw that you're still the CFO, so I wasn't sure. Well, I know. Well, <laughs> you know what that means? That means going over the statements. That doesn't mean doing anything. <laughs> I don't want to make any assumptions, Alan, so I figured out. Okay. <laughs> what, let me yeah. ask you this question. What was your biggest challenge? as a restaurateur and how did you overcome it? I think uh, the biggest challenge is to motivate, um, to keep motivating your staff. I mean, uh, because you, you know, you have down days, um, you have days where, uh, uh, for, for one reason or another, uh, your, you know, your dining room is, is 20, 20% less full than it was uh, usually at this time. And your employees are standing around uh, trying to figure out, you know, to keep themselves busy. And so you, you get them together and say, hey, you know, this is just a bad day. And uh, let's just smile and, and be our, our best and give what few customers we have here uh, the, the best treatment we can. Yeah. So what are you doing for them in that moment? What do we do for them? So in that moment, when you're you're lifting your, your team yeah. up, what are you doing for them? 
I'm, I'm trying to uh, improve their outlook in general. And, you know, I would sometimes bring up a, a, a silly, funny thing that maybe happened in the news that day or, or something and, and say, you know, uh, uh, it, it, it's not that bad when you consider the, the opposite. So it, it's just a, um, it's just, it's just a, a little motivation of, uh, you know, giving him a kick in the butt and saying, Hey, it's, uh, uh things are going to be good. Awesome. What was one thing your restaurants did really well besides food and drink that separated you from other restaurants? Um, well, the one thing we did is, um, uh, when I had Barnaby's, it was a, uh, English style restaurant and, uh, uh, we celebrated a lot of the English holidays and we had, uh, a, a special Dickens feast, uh, during the uh, Christmas holidays for people. And we put on, uh, uh, all kinds of uh, fashion shows inside the restaurant. We did a lot of, um, a lot of, uh, uh, different, uh, uh, PR items, uh, that uh, benefited the restaurant. And, uh, you know, uh, for instance, uh, at St. Patrick's Day, we would have a lineup outside the restaurant to get in. Um, because we became a, a place to go to St. Patrick's Day. So I gave out green bagels. Everybody's standing in line, uh, waiting outside. Um, uh, when we had, uh, um, when we had, uh, a Seahawk draft, uh, day at the restaurant, um, we gave out the uh, Seahawks, uh, um, a hat, uh, to all the customers. Um, these little mementos, uh, you know, came back to, uh, haunt us and, uh, and bring us more business, uh, year after year. We were known as, you know, a happening place and people would drop in because we did so many different, uh, programs that, they would drop in just on the on the instance that they may fall into one of our uh, promotions. Alan, what I love about you is that you play the long game. You're always looking about what am I doing right now and what's the long game going to be? What's the impact of this going to be over the long term? And you don't get caught up in the little details as far as why you can justify doing something that's going above and beyond now. But you know the impact of that in the, in the long game. And I think that playing the long game in this industry is so important. Would you agree with that? That's true. Yes, I do very much. With all the knowledge you have today, Alan, if you could go back in time to 1955 and give the past version of yourself one piece of business advice, what would it be? Trust your gut. Mm. Why? Well, because if you're going to be a, a successful entrepreneur, you better have a gut that can withstand 
the tumult that it brings to you. Mm. I love it, man. Uh, you've been so great, Alan. I've so enjoyed talking to you today. Is there anything we didn't get to discuss, uh, a topic you were hoping we would go over or a question you were hoping I would ask that comes to mind? No, I think we've covered it pretty well. You were awesome, Alan. Uh, we wrap up every episode by calling somebody out. So who is an independent restaurant operator, somebody you admire and think would be a great guest mentor like you were for us today? Yes, his name is Tom Douglas. Tom Douglas, look out. I'm coming after you. What's What restaurant does he own? He owns several in Seattle. He also... He also won the James Beard Restaurant Tour uh, Man of the Year oh, wow. in 2011. Beautiful. Tom Douglas, look out. I'm coming after you. I'd be honored to get you on the show. And um, I guess, I mean, this is usually where I have my uh, listeners share their social media handles. I don't know if you if you have any, if you're on Facebook or, or Twitter or anything like that, but uh, maybe an email if anybody has any questions or maybe if they want to come join your team. Uh, over at uh, Festivals Inc. Maybe you're hiring. Who knows? What's the best way to connect? Uh, my email would be the best way to reach me. Uh, unfortunately, I am not involved <laughs> with social media, uh, but it's Alan S A L A N S at Festival F E S T I V A L S dash or hyphen. INC.com. This is episode 369. Head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash 369. I'll have a summary of our conversation over there, plus links to how to connect with Alan. Alan, thank you so much for letting me make an example of you. You were great. Thank you, Eric. Appreciate <laughs> it. It was my pleasure. Cheers. Alan. Silverman crushing it today, bringing the bombs of knowledge. And what would you expect? 62 years experience in the industry. That is a record here at Restaurants Unstoppable. And I loved his story. I loved how his story parallels so much of what I've learned from what I believe is the right path to success. And that is starting small, scaling up. For Alan, that was a counter at a pharmacy. Maybe that's not possible today, but the concept is the same. Start with where you can. If you can't afford to buy your own location, collaborate with somebody who has the space. Start learning the skills. Start sharpening the saw and surround yourself with people that can help you grow and learn even more and just gradually scale up. That's exactly what Alan did. And it's a beautiful story. Uh, I loved his advice on masterminds. He called it something else. It was like a, a networking or a group to get together when he moved to Seattle. But this is something any one of you right now can do. And I guarantee you there are not a lot of people that do this because most people are closed. They don't want to share their information. They, they think it's me against you. But the truth is, if you have that 
mentality of abundancy. There's plenty of business for all of us. It's those people who have that mentality, who choose to work together, who choose to collaborate, who choose to, st- to share their struggles, to share their knowledge that will rise to the top. And look what happened with Alan by just starting this group of people sharing knowledge. He was able to define a pain point and start a whole new market of event coordinating. Maybe that might happen for you. Maybe not event coordinating, but who knows what you'll discover by just listening to the pain points of other people and finding solutions. Masterminds, excuse me. Masterminds are amazing. And guys, if you are interested in learning more about masterminds, I just wrapped up my second session of mastermind, uh, masterminding, I guess. And I, I want to do it again starting the new year. So you're getting a heads up right now. It's August when I'm recording this. So January of 2018, I'm going to do another mastermind. We meet twice a month for two hours, share our thoughts, share our challenges, but most importantly, just having people to hold you accountable, having somebody to actually force you to, to think about your thoughts, to, to set goals, to, to think out loud. It's so powerful. If this is interesting to you, or if you're interested in something like this, I can get you started. I'll teach you how to do it. You can take those skills and then apply it back to your own community. You can host your own mastermind. But if you are interested, shoot me an email, Eric at restaurantunstoppable.com. Uh, I will let you know how to get involved with that. And like always, just let me know who you want to hear from. Guys, I this podcast, this today's episode was because of, I believe it was Erica, who was Alan's stepdaughter, who said, you need to get my stepdad on the show. He His story is amazing. His experience is so incredible. He would make an incredible guest. If you can think of somebody like Alan, somebody who has been in this industry, who can share knowledge, who can tell us what it takes to be successful, who's been successful, let me know. I will get them on the show. We will learn from them together. We'll get inspired by them together. But you have to help me out. You have to put these people on my radar. Again, shoot me an email, eric at restaurantunstoppable.com. Uh, Special thanks to Jared for editing and promoting this episode. He is a lifesaver. And I guess that's it for today. Thank you so much for sticking around this long. I love you all. And until next time, peace out.